0: coming at you from the we dessert studio in houston texas you're listening to the weekly brew with austin staten kevin cook and jeremy paxton it's time to sit back relax and be informed
1: Welcome to episode 29 of the weekly Brew podcast. I'm Austin Staten joined by Kevin Cook and Jeremy Paxton. We have a new Super Bowl champion in the books as the Denver Broncos drop the Carolina Panthers 24 to 10. We'll discuss that in just a bit. But guys, how was the past week?
2: My week was uneventful, kind of leading up to the Super Bowl. Uh, I did some sports stuff, some normal stuff. Uh, I got to celebrate at Wii this week, so that was nice as well. But uh, everything was kind of leading up to this game, and it was as disappointing as you can imagine. I, I suspect we'll be hearing a lot about that the next week. But uh, so, uh, kind of an anticlimactic end to my week. What about you, Jeremy?
0: This weekend, I was able to see *Hail Caesar*, um, sort of the new Coen Brothers film. I was not overall impressed with it. Sort of a disjointed homage to old Hollywood. Uh, but if you are a film bus, but. but if you are a film buff, I would recommend seeing it.
1: What about this game specifically? I mean, first off, this is the first time that all three of us have been in the same room as we've recorded, but the Broncos again beat the Panthers 24 to 10. Peyton Manning went 13 of 23 for 141 yards. He had one interception, no touchdowns, quarterback rating at 56.6. So he didn't really have a remarkable game. But if you believe that, like a lot of people do, that he is going to retire at the end of this game, at the end of this season, then he's going out on top. But Kevin, you had alluded to it a little bit earlier. This is just a poor game overall.
2: Yeah, and I feel weird. I feel kind of off my game. Being in the same room is a little odd. I think most people know we podcast in separate rooms. Generally, I usually do that without any clothes on. So I feel sort of uh, just it's not it's not my comfort zone. So we're just doing the best we can over here. I can tell you that I am definitely glad that you are podcasting with clothes on right now, because I think that would be a very unpleasant sight. (laughs) It's a family podcast. So I did get dressed for this occasion. I appreciate you having us over to your domicile for the game. Um, I was disappointed because there was so much momentum for Carolina going into this game. If you looked at our Facebook feed and posts and so forth, everything was all Carolina. The betting. was was all Carolina leading up to the game. And then they sort of came out is it fair to say they laid an egg?
1: Yeah, it, it was absolutely disgusting how great the Denver defense was. We'd actually spoken about that a little bit in last week's podcast, but if you look at it, Von Miller, he had six total tackles, two and a half sacks. Uh, you look at Derek Wolf, he had five total tackles for half a sack. Uh, DeMarcus Ware, two sacks, five tackles. Uh, Darian Stewart, three tackles, one sack. So uh, that defense was just so dominant. He had 72 total tackles, seven sacks in the game. I mean... Everyone knew that Carolina had a dominant offense and they didn't think that uh, you know, the Broncos would have the offense to keep up in the game, but it looked like all the Broncos needed was just a defensive effort and Wade Phillips Gary Kubiak, the entire Broncos staff, brought that to the game.
2: Defense wins championships. I mean, how disappointing is it to see those guys there at that stage with Peyton Manning, who, as you were saying earlier, Jeremy, it could have been the guy in Houston had he not been vetoed. I'm not sure if that was Rick Smith or if that was Gary Kubiak, but for whatever reason, Peyton Manning didn't end up in Houston, and uh, and is now winning a Super Bowl with Gary Kubiak. And I got to say, I'm not, I'm not one of those Houstonians who's thrilled to see him uh, hoisting that trophy. Uh, I, I sort of feel bitter. I think that you guys are probably with me on that.
0: Oh, yeah, I, I, I couldn't uh, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, seeing Gary Kubiak get a Super Bowl ring after uh, his performance his last season in Houston, I mean, it's really disheartening. Um, although I will say for a player like Peyton Manning, it is a good way to go out. I, I would say I think this is his last season. Um, his speech there at the end of the game did suggest as much, you know, reevaluating his priorities, drinking a lot of Budweiser. I mean, it kind of sounds like his career's over
1: to me. Yeah, absolutely. But for a guy like Peyton Manning, who has had such a storied career, for him to go out on top like this— I think it draws so many similarities back to the late 90s when John Elway, you know, went out on top of two straight Super Bowl titles. And I know Peyton Manning, he's been there four times, but now he's batting 500 in the Super Bowls. He's got two rings. He's arguably one of the greatest quarterbacks of his generation. So if you're a Peyton Manning fan, if you're a fan of the quarterback position, you're kind of glad to see a guy like him go out on top. And, you know, I love Cam Newton. I love his persona, I love his, his charisma that he has on the field. But he's 26 years old. This is not his only Super Bowl.
2: So he's a character and a personality. But I think we talk about his charisma. There's also a negative aspect to that. So today we were watching, and I commented multiple times about the poor body language. At one point, he fell to the ground after something didn't go their way. And I think that that's sort of the the nature of this double-edged sword that is having a character, having a persona at the helm, is that you can kind of turn into bad body language. I don't think he was helping the team with his um, histrionics or uh, theatrics out on the field today.
1: Okay, so outside of the game, you know, uh, obviously the Broncos came out on top, but the commercials this year, what did you guys think of the commercial game? I mean, that's what a lot of people, probably a lot of our listeners tune into is for the commercials and the breaks between the game.
2: Well, I mean, are you familiar with the expression, jump the shark? I am. That's yeah, a reference to, uh, was a Happy Days, I guess, where Fonzie jumped a shark. Of course, the show went on for like six seasons after that. But that reference, of course, means that a, a show has sort of uh, broken past the point where it is popular and relevant and is sort of on the, the downhill, the downslope or whatever. That's kind of what happened this year with the commercials, I think. And what a disappointing slate of nonsense. So much money wasted on so little content. We saw a commercial for um, constipation, a commercial for diarrhea. We saw just uh, really weird pro-unprotected sex commercials from the NFL. Football is family. Advertising. Yeah, so it was basically Roger Goodell giving permission to you to go out and have a wild night uh, without using any form of uh, barrier birth control, if you so desire, uh, pro Super Bowl baby. So it was just a weird slate of oddness sort of uh discouraging actually kind of matched well with the game itself i think it was as discouraging as the gameplay was
1: yeah i think overall there, there was one commercial that stuck out to me and that was one of the ones toward the end and it was a Colgate commercial and i i think that the commercial was powerful because it, it spoke to me in saying that as americans we waste a lot of water whether it's you know brushing your teeth shaving that sort of thing uh but it was a 30 second spot and i think 20 seconds of it was talking about wasting water and then at the final bit of the ad they show a Colgate logo so So it was almost suggesting that if you buy Colgate, you you will automatically stop wasting water, but that was not the message that I got. The message to me was not, I'm going to go buy Colgate. The message was, okay, I should probably shut off my faucet. So I think that a lot of the ads that were placed today, when you're spending $3 million on an ad, the most important thing is brand recognition. And I think a lot of these companies failed.
2: It's a classic case of overthinking it. Or how about Prius, uh, the Prius commercial appealing to the criminal element, right? Like if you're gonna rob (laughs) a bank, buy a Prius. (laughs) I mean, geez,
0: the next time I rob a bank, I am gonna have a red Prius ready to go when I've got my money bags walking out the door. No, I mean, half the time, I couldn't even tell what product they were advertising for until the last five seconds of the commercial when the logo popped up. Um, I mean, there's several commercials. There's one with Liam Neeson. Um, the the one about the opioid constipation relief I, I couldn't tell what they were advertising for until uh, you know I was, I was I was completely lost so I guess the virtue from this is if you can't be funny be
1: weird. Perhaps, and speaking of weird, what did you guys think about the halftime show?
2: Uh, I I tweeted out, so all my followers already are aware of this, and I apologize for doubling up, but I tweeted out that Chris Martin's pants looked like his daughter bedazzled them, and uh, it was an odd juxtaposition. I think we all agreed that Bruno Mars and and Beyonce sort of um, outshone... Uh, Coldplay but it's exactly what I expected they were uninspiring it was kind of psychedelic I was sort of sad that I'd given up drugs when uh, when all those colors came out but so I didn't get from it what I could have I think but it was uh, it was boring and exactly what you expect from a lowest common denominator halftime show at the Super Bowl I love Beyonce
1: let's be real she's from Houston I cannot wait to see her I'm hoping she performs next year at the Super Bowl here in Houston
0: I would have loved to see an unfiltered Beyonce and Bruno Mars without the pollution that Coldplay clearly provided. I mean, the the colors, the the, the salt, like it seemed like the show was sort of run by Coldplay and Beyonce and Bruno Mars just sort of subbed in
1: for like the middle part. I just I didn't like it at all. So regardless of what you think, terrible game, terrible
2: halftime show, terrible commercials, terrible but terrible but- announcers. Yeah, Phil yeah. Sims can barely put two words together. How does he do that for a living? I, I don't know. But folks, that's what we're here for.
1: We provide a great podcast. We provide quality content such as you can't see during the Super Bowl. And you know, the content is not possible without our sponsor, We Desserts. And uh, We Desserts is known for their beignet days, and they've become so popular that they've now extended beignet days to three days a week, Thursday through Sunday. So be sure to check them out at 3411 Kirby and tell Penny and Jen the guys that the guys at the Weekly Brew sent you for 10% off of your total order. And actually, during our watch party, we actually had some Wee Desserts here
2: yeah you can get wee desserts for any occasion um, there's a there's a I don't know if you are aware of this is a holiday coming up Valentine's Day is what it's called um, and it has something to do with romance so uh, romance sweets often aligned you can get some of those sweets from we uh, people can get a dozen mini red velvet cupcakes or eight strawberry heart shaped macaroons uh, custom heart sugar cookies or chocolate dipped strawberries and all those uh, orders each one's under $25 so if you're uh, grasping for something to do for that special someone in your life whether that special someone's uh, a man or a woman you Certainly, everybody loves sweets. There's no gender to uh, confectionery. So you should reach out to We Desserts at 3411 Kirby. You can also call in your order. Their number is 713 487 9788. I highly recommend it. We enjoyed the cake. You'll enjoy uh, anything that you get from that. They're terrific.
1: Absolutely. And Jeremy, I happen to know that your girlfriend is in the room as we are podcasting right now, and Valentine's is coming up. So make sure that you get her some sweet, delicious treats from We Desserts.
0: Or a ham steak. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm going to have to. Let's see if they have hamstakes available. No, um, I, I do have to make a short um, amendment to a previous podcast. My girlfriend is not a Donald Trump supporter. Uh, she took an invalid measure of political persuasion and uh, did... And scored like she supported Donald Trump, but she does not.
2: So he comes in second in the caucus and now she's embarrassed to support him. This is what's happening to all of Trump supporters. This is why his campaign's falling apart.
1: Is this what you do when she's in the room? I mean, I just want to remind her I, I just want to remind our listeners that this is the first time that we've ever podcasted together and we actually have an audience, so it's it's, it's kind of cool. But uh, uh, Jeremy's girlfriend is in the room, but you know, we we talked about we deserves, but Additionally, we want to remind our listeners to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes then give us a five-star review rating and tell us what you're looking to improve the show. So we want to hear that feedback. Also, you can follow us on our social media platform. Just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can also find us at weeklybrewcast.com. On this week's podcast, we have a great interview with Joseph Duarte breaking down National Signing Day and H-Town Takeover. Plus, we sat down with Australian DJ Brooke Evers, who will be performing in Houston on Friday night. As always, we have a packed show on deck, so it's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. It's been several weeks since we've discussed politics on the show, but now is a great time to do so as the Iowa caucuses are in the books and the primary season is just heating up. Catching everyone up on Iowa, Texas Senator Ted Cruz won the caucus as Donald Trump finished second with Marco Rubio following in third. Mike Huckabee, Rand Paul, and Rick Santorum all announced they were suspending their campaigns following the results. On the Democratic side, Hillary Clinton narrowly edged Bernie Sanders while Martin O'Malley officially suspended his campaign. As we head into New Hampshire this week and the broader primary season forward who are the big winners to date
0: coming out of the iowa caucuses i really saw ted cruz coming out with a huge winner that was a must win for him um it was kind of a surprise to see donald trump um finish behind him by four points which of course all the polls had trump in the lead but as uh past iowa caucuses have shown us those are neither uh predictive of the final result nor are they all that helpful um to anyone besides the media so uh cruz really uh walked out of iowa a huge winner. Um, Rubio came up, I I guess you could say the winner who was not the winner was Marco Rubio, who gave a really good uh, speech to his supporters um, at the end of the caucuses. Um, coming into this week, I think uh, the momentum has certainly stayed with Trump, even though he did lose the, the caucus. And in New Hampshire, of course, all the polls uh, have him way up on all of his opponents.
1: I'm I'm not sure why you think that Cruz came out as the big winner in the caucus when his polling average has not really increased at all since the Iowa caucus.
0: Well, and I I, I think a candidate like Cruz doesn't appeal to every segment of the Republican Party. I think that that's no secret. Uh, He certainly does appeal to the base and sort of the the more Tea party affiliate elements of the party. Um, New Hampshire is a notoriously moderate state. Um, especially uh, with regard to its Republicans, so I mean, you're seeing candidates like Bush and Kasich uh, be up there where, in a state like Iowa, they just didn't have a chance. So, um, you know, Cruz can lose New Hampshire and still have some momentum going into a state like North, like South Carolina and Nevada. Um, but uh, I, I think it, it, it he needs to he needs to find ways to, get, to to keep that momentum going because right now it looks like it's all Trump.
1: Now, Kevin, one of the more fascinating things for me is looking at the Democratic side. Uh, last year in February, Hillary Clinton was polling at around sixty-one percent, and Bernie Sanders was polling just around seven percent. You look at the results of the Iowa caucus, and it was essentially a coin flip. I mean, they were separated by just uh, you know a few hundred votes. And uh, right now, Sanders is leading heavily in New Hampshire. What are your what are some of your thoughts on how the Democratic race is shaping up?
2: Uh, Well, I think the big winner here is Martin O'Malley, because he doesn't have to do this anymore. Um, So that's (laughs) And on the Republican side, your big winners would be Huckabee, Paul, Santorum. I mean, that's my feeling about the whole thing. It's a circus, and I haven't been following it very closely, which is why I got asked last about this. But I mean, uh, Bernie Sanders has a lot of momentum. I see a lot of my Facebook friends uh, talking about him. I see that he's gotten some very innovative uh, campaigning going online. um, And he seems to have uh, some sort of cachet or je ne sais quoi that uh, appeals to um progressives so i like what i hear about him and i like the uh the style you know i always see him associated with sort of a down-to-earth guy with a good message but i of course you guys know this i'm a sports guy i'm not following the politics that closely i just feel really good for all the guys who don't have to do this anymore
1: it's kind of interesting, uh, Larry David on Saturday night was hosting SNL, and I'm, I'm not sure if you guys are Larry David fans, but uh, ear- earlier in the season in SNL, he portrayed Bernie Sanders, and Bernie Sanders was you know, dumbfounded, said that it was an amazing uh, in- impersonation. So last night on SNL, Bernie Sanders made a guest appearance, and it was I, I thought it was quite comical uh, just to see those two both on stage at the same time. Uh, but it- it's interesting to me how Bernie Sanders is able to uh, captivate the youth in the Democratic Party, and how Hillary Clinton is still holding on to those senior citizen votes, you know, the establishment, of course. Uh, but in terms of polling numbers from the age 30 and uh, from eight, the polling numbers from age 18 to 30, Sanders is absolutely running away with it.
0: Yeah, I, I think that this represents to me mean, I look at the Bernie Sanders phenomenon, um, and see how poorly Hillary Clinton is doing with a lot of millennials, you can look at this two ways. You could see that this is sort of a a symbol for how far to the left the Democratic Party has gone. Or, you know, like on the Republican side, uh, establishment candidates in general are just very unpopular. And Bernie Sanders is not an establishment candidate um, with regards to most Democrats. So um, it is is a fascinating thing to watch. I don't think he's a snowball's chance in a general election. Um, And in general, I, I think that his appeal is limited to the college campus crowd.
1: And that's a very interesting point, because historically, there have not been that many young voters turning out to the polls in November. And so I think that if someone like Sanders does get the Democratic nomination and he can actually mobilize the youth vote, it could be a game changer. I mean, we saw record turnouts in both the Democratic and Republican Uh, sides of the caucus in Iowa, uh, I mean, record numbers of people turn out the polls. And I think it was because of that anti-establishment people, you know, looking toward Trump, looking toward Sanders, looking toward Cruz. Uh, You know, I think people are tired of You know, everything that's going on in Washington right now, and I think a lot of people have the same mindset as Kevin that, you know, the true winners of the debate or of the primary season are the ones that dropping out and don't have to deal with this.
0: Now, Austin, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, but speaking of mobilizing voters, tell us about Bernie Sanders, very interesting uh, methods for mobilizing voters. Probably younger voters to the polls.
1: <laughs> All right. So you guys are familiar with the uh, dating app Tender, correct? Oh, of course. Okay. So basically, Tender is uh, an app that you can download on your iPhone. And I guess it syncs up with your Facebook account. Uh, but essentially what it does is you... Swipe right if you think they're attractive. Swipe left if you don't think they're attractive. Uh, And then if you both match, then it pairs you up so you can chat with that person. Well, Bernie Sanders had two members of his campaign. I'm not sure if they were doing this on their own or if they were doing this on direction of Sanders. But they actually signed up for Tinder accounts. And it was actually two women, one from Iowa, the other from New Jersey. Uh, They were both in their young 20s. And they sent messages to each people that they matched with, and some of the messages were uh, downright hysterical. Uh, One of them was, do you feel the burn? Uh, If so, please text WORK to 82623 for me, thanks. Uh, You know, they were just using those as like, I guess, pickup lines. Uh, These women would ask if uh, uh, the people that they match with were going to vote in their upcoming primaries, and if they said no or on the fence, they would try to talk or to persuade them into voting, specifically for uh, Sanders and uh you know some people would you know kind of delete them unmatch them and others would say that they were voting for other candidates or say trump 2016 or report them as a bot Uh, but i guess tinder found out about this and decided that that was not how the app was meant to be used and so they banned their accounts and actually reuters has an article about this which is quite uh, fascinating and uh the last line in the article says it's speaking about one woman specifically and it says quote none of her matches resulted in an actual date
0: so <laughs> I, I don't know yeah I, I know right i mean the whole the whole catchphrase feel the burn if you if you are feeling the burn you should put tinder down and get tested grab a glass of cranberry juice and go to your doctor i'm serious that is just disgusting so if tinder props to you rightly banning these weirdos from your app i just think it's crazy that you're trying to mobilize
1: young voters By using Tinder. That's crazy to me.
2: I mean, Tinder has every right to do that, but I think it's, uh, I wouldn't say brilliant, but it's enterprising. I applaud them, and I think that's the sort of can-do attitude that young people have that are flocking to Bernie Sanders. I don't have any problem with the campaign doing it, and I don't have any problem with Tinder banning the people either. It's their app that can be used uh, the way they want it to be used, but I don't, there's nothing inherently morally wrong or uh, or. I think, unpleasant about it. I think it's, uh, it shows a really good spirit that I like to see in young people. And I think that it's important to note that I think uh, either one or both of the women were married. I can't remember what the number was, but um, clearly not using it as a hookup app as intended. Um, but campaign every way you possibly can. I, do you see Hillary Clinton's people doing that? Do you see? I could see Trump people doing that, actually. Uh, that wouldn't be that much of a surprise to me. But I have no problem with it as a campaigning tool, and I also have no problem with the company banning the people once they figured out what was going on.
1: Yeah, I think it's just absolutely fascinating. I mean, this is something you see. Uh, In 2008, President Barack Obama was doing a great job, you know, kind of engaging in the social media platform. And that's something the Republicans really struggled with, uh, you know, for the last election cycles, um, in terms of engaging the youth via social media. And, you know, that's something that, you know, 18 to 25 or 18 to 30 year olds are doing as they're using those dating apps. And so, credit these two women for, you know, thinking outside the box and thinking of a different way to reach potential voters. But I just thought it was funny, especially when your opening line is, do you feel the burn?" After the first round of, you know, debates have already happened after the Iowa caucus in New Hampshire happening this week. Who do we see right now as the front runners is, you know, for the GOP and the Democratic Party heading into the November election?
0: I think it's Trump on the Republican side, followed very closely by Cruz and Rubio. I don't see, even despite Rubio's debate performance last night, I don't see uh, guys like Chris Christie or uh, Bush moving up. Um, I still see this as uh, Trump and every everyone else is as sad as I am to to see that. Um, But I don't know. We'll we'll see. You know, this is this is uh, an election cycle, a primary for the Republican Party, unlike anyone in recent memory. So uh, I I still see Trump's the front runner, but uh, who knows what can happen with with Iowa, Iowa results being like they are. I. I don't think I'd count out Cruz or, or Rubio yet.
2: If you're looking for encouraging signs of, uh, of a democracy in action, I guess one thing I did glean from this is how much money, the astronomical amount of money that was spent on Jeb Bush's campaign with the absolutely infinitesimal returns. So it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a very small piece of it, but I do think it's encouraging that you can't just throw money at the problem and solve it, that there is more to it than that. But beyond that, I'm not sure there's much I've gleaned from this, uh, this round of caucusing.
1: I saw a result that said that Jeb Bush spent approximately $3,000 per vote that he got. (laughs) Yeah, so it's essentially he's wasting money. And you've seen a lot of the people that have backed Jeb Bush kind of stepping aside and starting to back, uh, you know, Marco Rubio or a different candidate. But Jeremy, to your point, you had mentioned uh, that you still think Trump is the front runner. It's interesting that his polling numbers have dropped nearly 10% following the Iowa caucuses. And uh, if he doesn't win New Hampshire, which he's currently favored, you know, double digits, but anything can happen in New Hampshire. I wonder if his campaign's going to end.
0: I don't think Donald Trump well, I, I used to think that it, during this stage in the cycle that Donald Trump would already have bowed out and that he would have really enjoyed playing Kingmaker, you know, endorsing a candidate, putting his weight behind him, and having that candidate eventually become the nominee. Um, but I, I don't know. I think he's in this thing to win it. What is very interesting about Trump and something that has been making the rounds on, um, a, a few blogs that I read is, you know, he's not taking any money for his campaign. And so if he doesn't take any money for his campaign, he doesn't ever have to report what he does with his money that he's spending. And so some of, some people have been speculating that, um, the endorsements that he gets from other candidates might be that he's paying off their campaign expenses. Um, so I, 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 with, I mean, he's got limitless resources uh, here because he's spending his own money and he's a billionaire. So I don't see him bowing out anytime soon. And I see him, if he does get some momentum out of New Hampshire, getting endorsements from some of these candidates that have bowed out.
2: I think that Trump is, uh, is a house of cards, uh, as your Netflix reference, and that this first loss is just kind of the beginning of the end for him um, this wave of populist support is kind of dying out people are seeing he's not invincible as he's been portrayed by the media, because let's face it, it's been a good story that Trump is so far ahead despite the fact that he is so unqualified and so crazy, but I think that that narrative is starting to come unwoven and along with it will come the Trump campaign So I, I, it was weird and almost depressing to see how gracious he was in that second place finish, and I think that sort of um, took away from some of his mystique. Rather than going on Twitter and putting everyone on blast, like people are accustomed to seeing Trump doing, he sort of acted like a politician. And ironically, I think that may be the death knell for his campaign.
1: Very interesting point. Uh, it, it's it's going to it's it's going to be fascinating to see how Trump continues to follow, especially if he doesn't pull well in New Hampshire uh, for the primaries to see what he does to see if he does have that. Uh, you know, persona to want to continue on, or if he's going to, you know, finally take a step back. Uh, but you know, there's always that threat of him running for a third party. And I think if that happens, you know, the Democrats, whether it's Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders, uh, they definitely slip into the White House in 2016. But I think the race that I'm most fascinated to see right now is on the Democratic side. Uh, Hillary just seems to be losing a little bit of momentum here and there. Sanders has so much momentum going for him. Nobody thought that he would even have a chance in Iowa, and it essentially came down to a coin flip. So I think it's going to be interesting to see what his campaign can do following new hampshire he's heavily favored in that state so he's got to carry that momentum moving forward into other primary states and i think that's going to be a little bit difficult for him to do Uh, but if he continues to turn out the youth to vote who knows what can happen you're listening to the weekly brew last wednesday morning On the one day per year in which fax machines are actually relevant, six of the top ten trending topics on Twitter in the United States focused on National Signing Day and the student-athletes that were making life-changing decisions. Now joining us on the Weekly Brew to discuss this and more is Joseph Duarte, the Houston Cougars beat reporter for the Houston Chronicle. How's it going, Joseph? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Hey, well, we thank you for joining us. Now a lot has been made the past few weeks about standout Texas prospects electing not to stay and play college football in the state, but opting for schools outside of Texas. Specifically, five of the top ten recruits this year and ten of the top twenty-five are heading away from Texas. Why are we seeing this mass exodus in Texas talent?
3: Well, I mean it's, I mean it's kind of always been like that when you have a state as big as Texas and you have as many recruits, uh, inevitably you're going to have. Uh, some that that choose to go elsewhere and, and you would think at a time when baylor's at an all-time high and the texas longhorns kind of pulling a, a late surprise with uh several uh big-time recruits uh committing to the longhorns that that you would not see that as much but i mean i, I think it, it just goes in cycles i mean you have years where um, a lot decide to stay close to home and then there's the years that you you see the the florida and the the uh California and up in Ohio and Notre Dame kind of steal them away so uh, but when you talk about Houston it's not so much about them leaving the state they they don't want them to leave the city and uh, the H-Town takeover uh, was was the big news uh, this year for Houston and the ability to keep those same great top prospects from even leaving the city limits.
1: And speaking of that, Coach Herman and U of H landed one of the most sought after recruits in the country and five star Westfield defensive tackle Ed Oliver. How was Coach Herman and the Cougars? How are they able to hold on to his
2: pledge?
3: Well, you know that's that's the key. You know, I talked to some analysts prior to signing day, and they said that they were going to be watching carefully. That not only would it be a surprise, but it would be shocking if Houston kept this class intact because of the negative recruiting that that tom herman and his staff would would have to uh defend off and, and that was the well was tom herman here for the long haul will he even be here next year the houston is not in a power five conference all those things that would normally work against a program they not only kept the the class intact with with the exception of, of tyree cleveland from westfield um you know they they weren't even close to losing anybody and the key was Ed Oliver, the number four prospect in the nation, uh, he, he committed to Houston nine months before signing day, and he never answered the phone call. So I guess that's one way that, to, to not worry about anybody stealing <laughs> your guys when, when the recruit doesn't even pick up the phone uh, to answer other schools. So he was the key, and once he committed and once the others saw that around the area, it, it just kind of dominoed, and they were able to put together the best class in school history.
2: What is it about this program and Tom Herman that enables a kid to have that sort of dedication to not even pick up the phone or even consider taking other calls from bigger programs?
3: Well, in Ed Oliver's case, they had two things working for them. His older brother, Marcus Oliver, is an offensive lineman at U of H, so he wanted to, to play college ball with him. And then also they had kind of the, the the ace in the hole with Corey Meekins, who's the tight end coach. He used to be Ed Oliver's head coach at Westville High School before, Tom Herman with a brilliant move to to add him to the staff as a tight end uh, coach. He's well-respected, not only in the Houston area with the coaches, but statewide. So uh, you see a lot of schools doing that these days, uh, tabbing somebody from the the high school ranks. And and they, they basically established a pipeline early on. But, you know, Oliver, what was the key? And once that happened, you started getting the Courtney Larks from Bel Air, who's one of the top receivers, and the D. Kings, who's the Manville quarterback, who is one of the top athletes, and it just kind of trickled down where uh, everybody wanted to be a part of it. And at the end of the day, you, they had 12 signees, excuse me, 11 signees from 12 different in the area that decided to stay close to home and play for U of H.
2: One they did actually lose, though, was Tyree Cleveland. I mean, was that a surprise to anyone? Is there any concern in the organization about you know losing this kid to Florida?
3: The warning signs were there. The, the last three weeks uh, of January, he took visits to TCU, Arkansas, and, and lastly to Florida. He grew up in Florida before moving to Texas, and uh, you know it was well known that his, his aunt wanted him to play outside the state. What was surprising was that on signing day, she didn't even know his decision. He handed her a Florida Gators cap, and it, it really took her by surprise. She wanted him to go to Arkansas. In fact, she said that she didn't feel like Houston was a good fit and that uh, he didn't need to play close to home. But in the end, Tyree Cleveland said he did what was best for him. And that's generally the answer you're going to get from these 18-year-olds. But, you know, time will tell. Uh, you know, as far as Houston, you know, they're they're not in the power conference. They're They're not that – that sexy, you know, school that a lot of these recruits dream of, uh, one day playing. But what they do offer is a, a coach and Tom Herman, who certainly for, for a year now everything he's touched has turned to gold. They went 13 and one, beat a Florida State team in the Peach Bowl, and they finished with the number eight ranking. So, uh, power five or not, uh, they certainly look the part, uh, at least on paper.
2: It's funny you mentioned the, the Power Five thing, because obviously we've seen a lot of upgrades in the, in the record. The football team, obviously the new stadium, uh, proposed plans for high fines in the future here. So there's um, certainly been a sense of upgrading around. Is this ultimately going to pay off with an invitation to, to a Power Five league, you think?
3: Well, it, it's certainly not going to hurt them. And, and what happened was uh, they missed the opportunity four years ago. They, they reached a Conference USA championship game. They actually hosted it. And they lost to the Southern Miss, and that was kind of the game where Kevin Sumlin had already kind of negotiated his exit to uh, to Texas A&M, and uh, that was kind of a chance to get into the BCS Buster role, kind of be that Boise State of TCU of, of that time. And when they lost the game, it kind of set them back because uh, they weren't in position. That Robertson Stadium was still standing. Hawthines uh, was well, you know, kind of the dump that it still is, and. <laughs> You you look at everything; it just they weren't prepared, but they've gone out. They hired the the hottest coaching name uh, right now in the business. Uh, as far as young up and comers, they they've uh, built a, a brand new 128 million dollar stadium. The 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 development center for the basketball programs is up and running. That's a 25 million dollar project, and they will start on that within the next year and a half. The renovation about 60 million dollars worth. So. Uh, they know what's in front of them. They know that they are not going to get an invitation if they don't do these things. And a lot of people point to the Big 12 as the the logical choice, but you know it remains to be seen when the next round happens in realignment and whether it's the Big 12 or, or possibly the Big Ten or maybe even the Pac 12.
1: Now it might be me, but it seems that the national signing day has almost gotten out of hand a bit. Uh, Michigan hosted what seemed like a massive production to announce their signees last Wednesday. And then four star safety, Deontay Anderson from Manville, announced his commitment to Old Miss by skydiving with Bleacher Report producing the video. Has the extravagance surrounding signing day gotten too big?
3: Yeah, I mean I used to think it was out of hand when a kid would go to the store and buy four caps and spend fifty <laughs> bucks and chunk the other three when he was done with them, or at least maybe keep the tag on them and return them. Uh, but, you know, you see these crazy things nowadays. Uh, everybody wants to go on the Under Armour All-American game and, and be in front of the cameras and or on the podcast and make their their decision. And, and granted, it, it's a huge accomplishment and it's a big moment in, in, in one's life, but uh, it, it is over the top. I mean, I'm waiting for the guy who, who rinses out, you know, Ringling Brothers or the Circus <laughs> du Soleil or something and and uh announces that way but uh, I don't have a problem with it I mean it, it's one day a year it's kind of like Christmas and in, in February you know some of the things that you see on the other hand with coaches that pull scholarships and and, and do some of the things that have been in the news especially with Michigan um, you know maybe maybe there's a balance in it so you know kids will be kids and and uh you know, parents will allow it. So I, I guess, unless, uh, as long as they're not hurting anyone, it, it's it's maybe not a bad thing.
2: I mean, I think ultimately speaks to the, uh, the spectacle speaks to the, you know, the massive business that this college football has become. And so, uh, you know, it's funny, uh, Alabama, Baylor, U of H, all those guys were really uh, intensely focused on the interaction on social media. Social media has kind of taken a central role in recruiting. Obviously, Tom Herman um, instituted the H-Town takeover hashtag. And and obviously they were, uh, you know, stars today, J.J. Watt, Paul Wall, etc. They that were reaching out to these U of H commits. So, I mean, uh, given that, you know, you've seen a a lot of football in your years at the Chronicle. How would you describe the changes taking place that has taken place in college football and the landscape of social media?
3: Well, let me. I'll probably date myself on this, but I remember when I first got to the Chronicle, I would spend my Sundays picking up a, a phone, not a cell phone, but a regular in-the-wall-Jack kind of phone, and I'd have a list of about 100 recruits that I would call one by one on Sunday night. How did your visit go? Uh, where are you looking at next week? and I would write a story for the paper. I didn't write it for the web. I didn't write it for social media because none of those things existed. You you got the news the next day, and, and that's how it was. So now you look at how things have taken off with social media. I thought it was brilliant what Houston did with the, the stars that came out, the J.J. Watts and the the Dallas Keichel and Andre Ware uh, to do that because that's all I heard today uh, that last week going to these different schools of, man, I, I got Paul Wall sending me a message or – or one of these other, you know, celebrities. And, you know, that's kind of what you have to do. You have to have that edge. Uh, you have to be that coach. I mean, who who has a grill that's a college football coach other than Tom Herman? <laughs> Nobody. You know, I, I never thought I would write grill in any story unless I was talking about a barbecue that somebody was having. <laughs> but, uh, but he did. He went out. He made a promise. Then they made a big splash over it. They brought him in. They had the fitting you know, we're in Atlanta for the peach bowl and they FedEx it. And next thing you know, Tom Herman's got a, a dozen cameras around him and he's flashing the grill with uh, the red U H at the top and uh, the T H initials at the bottom, uh, <laughs> and, and rubies or, or red diamonds or whatever they were. So, I mean, you've got to stay ahead of it. You have to be the, the hip school, the hip coach. And, and certainly, uh, for those who have been around Tom Herman, uh, he fits the bill and, uh, you know, they're going to try to keep him as long as they can.
1: You had mentioned a little bit about the negative recruiting that other schools, specifically in the state, had done with Coach Herman, trying to get some of these top prospects. And uh, during the offseason, there were a lot of boosters behind Texas and Texas A&M saying that, you know, if Charlie Strong or Kevin Sumlin have a bad year, Herman could be the next coach at one of those schools. And they've got, you know, the big pocketbook. Now, my question for you is, if you could just fill in the blank here, in 2018, Tom Herman will be the head football coach at...
3: <laughs> uh, the University of Texas. That that would probably be the most logical destination. Uh, you know, he's been there as a graduate assistant. Uh, they really, uh, in terms of boosters, have made no secret that the, the minute Charlie Strong uh, falls on his face again, uh, that, that he's out and they would probably come after Tom Herman. And I think it works in Tom Herman's favor because uh, – I don't know if they would have seriously gone after him this year. You know, he had one great year, but I think a lot of people would like to see how he comes back in year two with Houston and maybe even a a possibility of a year three. I'm not saying that it's definite. I think that's the the likely destination. But if you talk to Tom Herman, you know, he's a guy that, you know, he had the opportunity where, you know, if if money is the the end all, I'm sure he could have made a lot more money elsewhere. And I remember for about – six-week stretch we were having to shoot down rumors that he was going to South Carolina that he was going to Georgia that Missouri would come calling uh even Miami so you, you had all these different schools that where his name was coming up and, and that's going to always be the case and that's what Houston is going to have to deal with welcome to the big time of college football University of Houston you didn't have this when you didn't have a winning team and you didn't have a coach that people wanted you have both now so that's just that's just today if that's what they have to deal with.
1: I kind of look at it as almost a form of flattery, you know, that the University of Houston is hiring these coaches that other schools want. I mean, you have Art Briles, you have Kevin Sumlin, and now Coach Herman. Uh, one of the things that I remember from when I was a student at Baylor is Coach Bryles coming in, the facilities at the university were not good, uh, but they made that commitment, they made that investment, uh, they, they made the financial commitment. And that's something that I've seen U of H do this past offseason, uh, giving them a $3 million contract extension. Does that almost say that you know U of H is going to put their money where their mouth is and kind of make sure that they keep a guy that they know is a great fit for the program
3: well it's something they've never done before they have never come close i mean this is more double uh salary for excuse me for a head coach than they've ever uh given anybody so i think one it's it's a sign of the times because nowadays if you look at the you know we talk about pro sports and the escalating salaries well that's over into college football when you look at Nick Saban what he's making and some of the coaches around college football the major programs so uh I remember when Floyd Casey you know was half empty and you know it was old and outdated and and the Farrell Center there was was you know in need of repair and didn't have a a practice facility and then now you look at the, the McLean Stadium that they have on the Brazos River and how beautiful it is and it's several hundred million dollars so Baylor got it they went out and got the right coach they put in a fun exciting productive system and and then they 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 found the, 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 the winning and the winning brought the fans and the the winning brought the boosters and, and they were able to do all the things that they never could do because they, they suddenly had that interest and they had that influx of money so uh, U of H I think is following that that path. I don't think the pockets are as deep when it comes to some some of the boosters like they are at Baylor, but uh, they certainly have the the resources, I believe, to not only make that next jump into a Power Five, but to to be sustainable and, and have some success.
2: Part of that, obviously, the football program is taking care of business and is now uh, legitimately in the national headlines. You know, number eight ranked and in, in one of the top thirty recruiting classes in the country. The basketball program trying to do some of the same work, moving up from a, um, you know a not very uh, glorified status. Obviously, Heinz, you mentioned a bit of a dump sometimes, but Kelvin Sampson, you know, I think is a terrific coach and, and a great guy and, and probably the guy to take him there. So we we were both there at the SMU win. Uh, I was ecstatic. I don't know how you felt, Joseph, but I mean just. Given that they're trying to reach that same trajectory, get to that next level, how big was that win for the basketball program? And what do you see in terms of the future for uh, for the basketball guys?
3: Well, this is a program that's um, you know it's been in a comatose for for over you know twenty five years since the the tail end of that five slamajama era. I think they have one NCA win since nineteen ninety two and one conference title. Uh, so right now, anything they get is, is certainly going to be in the right direction. I, I thought that the Kelvin Sampson move was one of those bold strokes that they, they had to make. And before he took the job, you know, he laid his cards on the table and said, look, I've, I've been at other programs. Uh, people, you know, think of what Oklahoma is today, and they're the number one team in the nation. But before Kelvin Sampson got there, you know, they were a, kind of a hit-or-miss program. They, they, didn't, they had been to the NCAA tournament, but uh, the facilities weren't in great shape, and, and they just didn't have that run of success. And he gets in there and takes them to, I believe, twelve straight NCAA tournaments." uh, and then goes to Indiana. Uh, so Kelvin Sampson knows how to build a program and, and he's the kind of name recognition that they needed to kind of get this thing rolling. Uh, he said, I'll only come if you, if you put that shovel in the ground and, and get that developmental center, uh, going project wise. And, and they did. And, and now he, finds, and they've already approved that. So, uh, as far as what they're doing, you know, he also inherited a roster that had just been ravaged by by transfers. One went to a one went to Oregon, one went to Oklahoma, and then you, you look at what they had and had they stuck it out with Kelvin Sampson, they probably are an NCAA tournament team or close to it in his first year, but they aren't, so he's had to build this thing up from the ground. Recruiting has really gone well. They're, they're in the running for a, a five-star center out of Austin, uh, Jared Allen, I, I believe is his name, and, and then you think so uh, it's 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 been a slower progress. It just hasn't been one of those football moments where everybody, you know, came together in a 13 and one season, but uh, they have a chance to win 20 this year. And, and for Houston, that would be a, a huge huge step in, in the right direction
2: and so i guess that kind of speaks to what the ceiling is for this season because obviously the, the future is bright for this program but in terms of the talent they have on the floor and then given that smu with the postseason ban i mean how would you assess the ceiling for what this team this specific talent can do this year
3: it's wide open in the american athletic conference with smu ineligible. i believe there's six or seven teams within a, a game and a half of, of first place so right now uh, while he says hey well, we can Compete or win conference, probably not. I mean, that wasn't our goal this year. Uh, they, they're, they're in the mix, and I don't think anybody could have said that at the beginning of the year, or at least this late in the season, that Houston would be there. Um, but it's it's one of those races where they're going to have to win the conference tournament to get a bid. Their their RPI with the non conference schedule was just so bad that they're going to have to make a, a serious run here at the end. Now, if they you know if they end up twenty four and nine or something, I think they they're an outside chance. Um, but I think it comes down to winning the tournament to get the automatic bid. But uh, I, I think even Kelvin Sampson would tell you that he didn't think that they'd be in this position. He he always points to next year being that year uh, because he's going to have his entire uh, front court, excuse me, his entire back court back, and uh, with the possibility of adding another key recruit. Uh, you know, he's he's doing things his way and, and what he considers the right way, and, and it's hard to argue with him because the, the guys had success everywhere he's gone.
1: So two great coaches here with the men's basketball program and the football program. And Joseph, you had alluded to earlier that, you know, you had started, uh, you know, several years ago at the Chronicle just using your house phone. And I'm, I'm curious, you've been at the Chronicle since 1996. And with journalism shifting from print to digital, what advice would you give someone trying to break into the industry right now?
3: Well, uh, my, my first advice is the the immediacy of everything nowadays makes it extremely dangerous where you see a lot of people wanting to be first, but not necessarily be right. Uh, I think the same principles, uh, the bedrock of journalism, still apply, and it's you know it's about the 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 fairness and the the balance in the coverage, and and also needing to be right. You you should want to be right. You should not want to just jump on social media with the first thing that you get. And I think that gets lost nowadays with Twitter and and all these other um, social media. Um, avenues that, that people get on there. And, and especially, uh, young journalists and, and those that really don't have accountability or someone to answer to, uh, they just kind of see what sticks. And, uh, it's a dangerous world we live in these days. And I think the Tom Herman and the rumors, uh, was a perfect example of how quickly, uh, a fan website or a, uh, maybe not as credible, uh, website can can just put something out there and, and see if uh you know you're going to be kind of right but not all the way right and that's the very dangerous game to play nowadays in this business
1: again we've got joseph duarte from the houston chronicle and joseph we definitely appreciate you taking the time to uh, speak with us talk about u of h talk about recruiting just the national landscape of college football even the uh, the cougs basketball season but for those that are interested in following your work where can they
3: find you well well first of all the the houston chronicle webs- website chron.com I can also be found on Twitter, with my first name Joseph underscore Duarte, and uh, you know all things University of Houston. I, I kind of uh, freelance a little bit at the Chronicle. I've covered all the major beats, so I'm kind of a utility guy during the during the season. So you know I can weigh in on the Texans and Astros, and never done the Rockets, but uh, pretty much everything is fair game. So uh, that's where they can find me, and uh, you know hopefully I'll uh, have plenty more to write about for the next you know couple of years (laughs) at least until retirement (laughs) (laughs)
1: well joseph we definitely appreciate your time uh joining us today and uh enjoy the rest of your week we appreciate it thanks for having me on guys you're listening to the weekly brew a few weeks ago on the podcast we noted that we had several listeners join us from australia this week we're glad to welcome in australia dj brooke evers to the weekly brew podcast brooke will be performing friday night february 12th at proof rooftop lounge in houston and she just opened her U.S. tour a few nights ago in Las Vegas. Brooke, how are you doing this week?
4: I'm really good. I've just got to um, Lake Tahoe. So I'm DJing tonight here.
1: Is it pretty cold there?
4: Um, well, I'm, in, I'm currently in a car, so I don't know. But um, I'm <laughs> outside, it looks it's snowing, so it's a bit different to Australian, Australian weather right now.
1: Well, we're glad to have you on the show, and so you have quite the unique background spanning from modeling to hosting a radio show in Australia. You even have a journalism degree and digital media degree. How did you make the transition to DJing and producing music?
4: Well, during university, like, when I was studying, I worked in nightclubs for, yeah, for years, so I was always in the nightclub industry, always working um, as far as, like, well, I did, like, a lot of, like, marketing and working in the office and, then like and then I started working inside the club and hosting and stuff and then I was like there was no not really that many female DJs in Australia so I saw so I kind of just um, borrowed a friend of mine he had some CDJs at his house and I started just you know just mugging around at home and just practicing and just you know nothing big and then I started like really like loving it and then I the guy at the club was like hey I'll give you some slots like warm up. If if you if you're interested, and I just started working for free, like for about a like probably six months, just working for free every night in the club, warming up, blah blah blah, until I got the confidence to sort of do do my own thing, and then yeah, it kind of went from there, and then I, I and then I was always, and then I finished university and started working a day job, and then I started getting gigs, and it was just much more fun being a DJ than working in an office. So.
2: <laughs> Well, I'm curious. You mentioned there's not a lot of uh, women DJs in Australia, and I actually don't know if that's particular to Australia. I think it tends to be something of a male-dominated industry. Why do you think it is, and what's been different about your experience being a woman in that field?
4: Yeah, guys treat you a lot different. especially like when I like, for instance, like I don't know, they sort of like treat you like little babies. I don't know. It's really a weird thing. You don't. It's going to take a long time, I think, before guys. Well, the whole industry kind of realises that girls can do exactly the same as what the men can do. So, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of, you know, sex kind of in the industry. It's such a boys' club. It really is. Like, you go to festivals and that, and you see all male DJs just hanging together, like, as this massive bro code. But, yeah, (laughs) and then you sort of see the girls sort of doing their own thing. But, um, yeah... How do I feel about it? I think it's all change over time. It's just one of those things that just takes a bit more time.
1: Electronic dance music is a growing phenomenon worldwide, and you've got a variety of subgenres such as trance, dubstep, and house. How would you describe your sound?
4: Yeah, well, I just play a lot of electro house mixed in with a bit of hip hop. I kind of like to mix it all up because, yeah, like kind of almost, almost open format if you kind of know what that term is.
1: So does that kind of help with the crowds? Is, is it almost just like reading the crowds at your shows, essentially?
4: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, because nowadays, like, you can walk into a club and you think you're listening to electronic music, but yet the DJ might be playing hip-hop. So you just don't know. Like, it just all depends on the crowd, really. And if yeah, I, like, I feel like I play full-blown rock into hip-hop, into house, into friggin' dubstep, into trap, all in one set. So it's kind of hard to sort of say what exactly, like what sound I am, but it's more or less electro-house.
0: Brooke, just kind of parrying off of that, I imagine uh, you spent a lot of time in the studio prior, uh, prior to your U.S. tour. What type of effort does it take to develop a perfect mix for your shows?
4: Just finding music that you think will work well. Every, every country and every state is so different. So like in Australia... Um, the music changes all the time. Um, yeah, so like in probably like in like in Australia it's more like you know it's it's a bit hard at the moment. Everyone loves like you know the Melbourne bounce, the electro house, kind of hard style. But over here it's not so much like that. I think maybe because it's more commercial based, you know, because you've got such I don't know. Yeah, that's what I that's what I personally think. Radio jams are like it work really well in this, um, in this country so um, yeah i like preparation wise i just i just pretty much find see what's going on in the radio f- then find some good mixes or make edits myself
2: so you uh, you do have quite the following on social media. You, you could probably fairly describe you as like a social media maven. I noticed that your tour is actually the hashtag I partied with Brooke Evers. So it's kind of like that idea of community with your audiences. And I'm curious, what role has social media played, kind of in crafting this tour and also in crafting your persona and identity as a DJ?
4: Well, before I was a DJ, like I I had quite a quite a good brand as far as modeling because I did a lot of work like growing up. So I already had my sort of name established and then um, so it was kind of easy to sort of stop modeling so much and focus on DJing and just really push like um, that, like, you know, photographs and stuff like video and all that sort of stuff with DJing, but um, it does play a massive role in in, um, your brand anyway to get you out there because without, I don't know, it's just, yeah, it's such a big deal right now, especially this day and age, so...
0: Of course, it's not your first time in the U.S., but um, is there something you like to do when you're not DJing and producing music here uh, when, when you're uh, in different countries?
4: Well, I don't, oh, there's a lot. There's so much. I, I, I love exploring. I love hiking and, um, and you know, snowboarding. There is, you know, there is snowboarding and stuff, but you can snowboard in, in Australia, yeah, but there's nothing compared to over here, you know, the amount of snow that you guys get. And, um, yeah, and just... I don't know. There's, you know, you've got all your big theme parks, and what else? What world... I can't really tell you. Really, <laughs> I just every city I sort of go exploring and and try to find something different about each town, and sh- get the promoters and stuff to, like you know show me like just before I got the driver to stop, and I took a photo in front of um, in front of Lake Tahoe because I've never seen it before, and it's absolutely stunning. So. Just, uh, yeah, I'm a bit of a nature get girl, so I kind of like like to find, I don't know, different parts of nature that I love, and yeah.
1: Now, as we mentioned a little bit earlier, you play in Houston this Friday, February 12th, at Proof Rooftop Lounge. What can fans expect from your show, and how can they find tickets?
4: Just, they probably can expect one massive, crazy, Aussie-influenced party. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no. I'm not sure where to get tickets for that show. I'm gonna to have to look it up, but it's. I'm sure if you hit them up on Facebook or Twitter, I'm sure they can help you out, or even a website. But um, yeah, just expect to be partying with programmers.
1: <laughs> so, so what is that like? What is that vibe like at the shows?
4: I, I like to just turn it up, really. Just a lot of a lot of bottles, a lot of hands in the air, a lot of jumping. That's kind of the Aussie way, I think.
1: Again, we have Australian DJ Brooke Evers joining us on the podcast. Brooke, for those that want to keep up with your work and follow you, where can they find you?
4: Just uh, uh, at Brooke B R O O K E. Don't forget the E and it's Evers E V E R S. So yeah, just Twitter, um, uh, Instagram, Facebook. That's all the same. My Snapchat is just Brooke Evers, and then the number one because someone's got
3: Brooke Evers. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, Brooke, we definitely appreciate your time and joining us on the podcast, and uh, we're looking forward to seeing your show here in Houston next Friday.
4: Oh, cool. All right. Well, I'll see you guys there then, hopefully.
1: All right. That sounds great. Well, again, we have Brooke Evers, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Closing time. Guys, I really enjoyed this episode. We talked about sports, politics. We even had a great interview with a DJ, Brooke Evers, who's going to be coming into town next
2: week. What did you guys think about this episode? Well, I couldn't be more excited having uh, my buddy Joseph Duarte on. He does great work over at the Chronicle. I always enjoy uh, following him on Twitter, following his stuff, and he does a good job covering the University of Houston and also the larger college landscape in terms of sports, so uh, a pleasure to have him on. And uh, and then I, I was not familiar with Miss Evers before we had her on the show. I've since become a fan. I'm going to try to make it out to that show myself. I recommend all of our listeners do the same. And follow her on social media because there's a lot of uh, fun stuff happening. The I Partied with Brooke Evers hashtag is, uh, is popular and people seem to enjoy getting out there and and, uh, and taking in her stuff.
0: Absolutely. Uh, I'm really looking forward to the Burke Evers concert. I think that we are planning something. Who knows? We might all be there. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. So um, I, I'd love to see you guys out there. Uh, really enjoyed talking about politics, really looking forward to the New Hampshire primary and uh, what
1: that, uh, what that yields. I've never heard of some of these States. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It, it's all about Texas here, right, Kevin? <laughs> but Yeah, exactly. Iowa, New Hampshire. No, it's Texas forever. But anyways, we definitely have always recommended that our fans follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on our social media platforms. Again, you can find us at Weekly Brewcast. But the most important thing that we care about is iTunes. We want you to go and follow us and subscribe on iTunes. We want you to leave us a five-star review. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. And as always, it's that time of the show where
2: Kevin tells us the reviews that we've had in the past week. Uh, I will say that I had uh, someone I sort of knew tangentially reach out to me this week, say he wanted to enjoy the podcast and he didn't like iTunes, didn't ever want to subscribe to iTunes. Could he enjoy it otherwise? I said, yeah, absolutely. We're on SoundCloud. Just search for us there. So you don't have to get us through iTunes. But because it is sort of a central clearinghouse um, for everything and we can sort of measure the impact there, we would love for you to be on iTunes if you don't have any sort of moral objection to it. And uh, we do. We have a new review. Obviously, the reviews we've mentioned before help us show up in people's search. Searches, they're very important. They make us look as appealing as we actually are when people search for sports podcasts. So we love to have them, and we all know that it makes my week. So the uh, person that made my week this week, Eli9845. I'm not getting a gender from that. Eli could be guy, girl. I'm getting, yeah, nobody. I'm thinking book of Eli. Okay, so Liz or Eli, whoever it is, great listen, exclamation mark. I agree. I love listening to the Daily Brew. It's not daily. Daily. But maybe, but maybe she, she listens stage. daily. She should. There's certainly enough episodes you can go back and listen to our greatest hits at this point, and I certainly recommend you do that. I notice a lot of people on iTunes do go back and listen to the older stuff. A lot of it's evergreen. I recommend it. They do a great job of keeping sports commentary entertaining and an even better job of keeping politics interesting and humorous, which we certainly did this week. So you're in for a surprise, Eli. The jury's still out on who is my favorite host, but I'm leaning towards statin, Son of a... Every time. Uh, although I do love that they threw a Democrat in the mix, so you guys were like a rabid Tea Party. That's uh, a shout out to you. It is a shout out to me. I am the lone Democrat here, so uh, I appreciate that shout out. It wasn't that I was. I'm still no one's favorite host, apparently, except maybe my girlfriend's. But um, but that is a wonderful review and exactly the sort of thing you should leave us. It's very simple. Just go to iTunes, click ratings and reviews, click five stars, and we will give you a shout out. So uh, you know, make sure that you include your name with that as well.
1: Absolutely. So we thank Eli for the positive review on iTunes. We encourage you. All to go to iTunes. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. Give us a five-star review. Also, be sure to follow us on our social media platforms. Again, you can search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also follow us online at weeklybrewcast.com. But guys, I really enjoyed this episode. We had a great interview with Joseph Duarte. Even if you're not a U of H fan, I think you're going to love the content that he provided. Also, we had a great interview with Brooke Evers. Make sure to go and check her out at Proof Rooftop Lounge in Houston. You can find her tickets online at Eventbrite and you know also keep in touch with politics we want to make sure that when super tuesday comes to texas and the rest of the states that you're informed we hope we can provide you some information to help you make that decision who you're going to vote for but as always i had a great time in episode 29 of the weekly brew podcast and for my co-host kevin cook and jeremy paxton i'm austin staten and we'll see you next week
2: brew responsibly
1: kevin i'm so glad you have clothes on
0: You've been listening to the Weekly Brew.